Okay, well, good morning from me. My name is Kevin, if you don't know me. Uh, I am not going to be preaching today, but I am going to lead us in a time of prayer. So if you are new to Watermark, we uh, pray at this time our service each week. And part of the reason for that is we don't just want to come to church and sing a few songs, listen to a message and go home. The point of why we gather on Sunday is to encounter the living God. That's our goal on Sundays. And we do that through song. We do it through looking at His Word, but we also do that through prayer. And so this is an important part of our service. Uh, I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer, but I want to ask you to join me. And so listen to what I'm praying for, and you agree in your own heart, say, yes, Lord, that, that is, I agree with that. I want to pray for that. And then just, I wonder if we can get this slide up. We should have a slide. Okay, I don't know if you can see that picture. These are some new friends of mine. Their names are Muhammad and Damira Nagumanov. Okay, and these guys have planted a church in Kazakhstan. I met them this week in Malaysia. And um, Muhammad is not because he is Muslim, it's just in Kazakhstan that is a regular name. But uh, uh, Muhammad was, um, grew up in Kazakhstan, was part of the social, um, Soviet Union, uh, uh, I think, chemistry program. Woke up one day, was about to go to Moscow the next day to join the Soviet Union chemistry program. Woke up that morning and the whole Soviet empire had fallen. This is around like 1990 or so. And uh, his whole world came to an end. He believed that the Soviet empire was God. And so suddenly he realized my whole world has come to an end. That led him to search for Christ, became a follower of Jesus. And they've been planting this church in um, Elmati in Kazakhstan. And so we're going to pray for them as a church. Um, and so, won't you join me as we pray together? Let's come before our Father in prayer. Sovereign uh, Lord, majestic God, we do come before you as a church family this morning uh, to adore you and to worship you, to lift up your name and to declare your praises. Father, thank you that we can stand firm on the truth that though the storms of life come, you are sovereign and you are faithful. You are majestic and glorious, God. And even though, as we're going to hear this morning, there is uh, an enemy of ours called Satan that is going to try and torment the church. But God, we stand on the truth that you are sovereign, that, that our enemy is a defeated foe, and that you, Christ, rule and reign over all things. Father, thank you for your incredible patience with us. Thank you that you're so long-suffering, God. Father, we do worship you this morning. We think of Psalm 14 that says how the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And Father, this morning we confess that many of us, myself included, we live our lives often day to day as if you are not real, as if you are not on the throne. God, even though at our heads we acknowledge you, in our hearts, God, we live foolishly looking to ourselves. And Father, we want to confess that this morning and ask you to one, forgive us, but two, come and reorientate our hearts back to you. God, we want to live day by day reliantly on you, oh God, trusting in your amazing grace. Father, make us like Proverbs 1 says, those that fear you and really live in awe of you. Father, this morning as we come to your word in Revelation 13 and 14, we pray that you will speak to us. We pray for Justin, who will be preaching. We pray, God, that it won't be his words that speak to us, but your words through your written word. Jesus, we want to encounter you in your word. And so we pray, prepare all of our hearts to meet with you in your scriptures this morning. God, anything that is not of you, we pray it will fall on deaf ears. And we pray that your word will come alive, God. Show us how to respond to your word this morning. 
Father, this morning we want to also pray for our great city, for Hong Kong, the city in which we live. And, and God, in the midst of the continued uh, difficulties and challenges of our cities, we ask you, God, won't you show us our own hearts? God, won't you reveal to us where our hearts are hoping or trusting in false gods rather than you? Father, where, where there is anger and resentment towards one party or another, we pray, God, you show us what's in our hearts, what's underlying that anger, God. God, we pray that, as, uh, that the church, and not only for Watermark, but for other churches, make us agents of peace and hope in our city, God. Father, we pray for our political leaders. We pray for the police, Lord. We pray for those that are trying to restore peace, Lord God, to our city. We pray, God, for wisdom. We pray for the protesters, God, those that are so upset about what's going on and want to make a stand for justice, God. We pray that in all of this, your peace will prevail, God. We pray that emotions will subside, God, and for peace in, in the hearts of all. Father, we do pray for our city that we love, and we pray that your kingdom will come here. May it be in Hong Kong as it is in heaven, we pray, God. And then finally, Father, this morning we want to pray for our new friends in Kazakhstan, for Muhammad and Demira, uh, Demira, God, we pray for them and the work that they're doing. We pray, God, want you give them increased wisdom in the midst of increasing government opposition to the kingdom of God and the church and the gospel in, Hong, in um, Kazakhstan. We pray, God, give them amazing wisdom how to evangelize and witness, how to share your gospel. God, we pray that their church will be strong, Lord. We pray for leaders to emerge, God, and for um, young leaders to emerge, Lord. We pray, God, that... Uh, that your blessing and your power will rest upon their congregation. We pray for new churches to be planted in Kazakhstan, God. We pray that, that the gospel will go forward there, Lord. We pray that your kingdom will come. We pray that many young Kazakhs will come to know you, God. We pray for church unity in that nation, Lord. That uh, Presbyterians and Pentecostals, Baptists, uh, everyone across the spectrum will work together and be unified by their love for you, Jesus. And we pray for their family, God. We pray for their children and for Muhammad and Damara's uh, marriage, God. We pray strengthen them and encourage them. Refresh them and revitalize them, we pray. Father, we love to come before you in prayer. Thank you that you're such a good and faithful God. You're so faithful, Lord. There's no one and none like you, and we love you, Lord. We pray these things in your wonderful and your patient and your sovereign name. Amen. Amen. Great. Jefferson and Annabelle are going to read God's word to us this morning. The scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 13 to 14. Please follow along in your bulletin or on the screen. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, 
blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and, the, and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it was allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak, and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves of women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said that with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him, who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, and receives a mark on his forehead 
or on his head. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, pour full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he, who he sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And when the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, for 1,600 stadia. This is the word of God. Okay, thank you Jefferson and Annabelle for reading this long passage in Revelations 13 to 14. And I hope the sermon wouldn't be as long. <laughs> so, <laughs> my name is Justin. I have been attending uh, Watermark for, since my freshman year at uni. So I've been attending here for six years. If you have been coming to church for a while and have been attending the f- last few services in our series called Between the Cross and the Throne, you probably have already known the term already, but not yet. It's a term we use to describe the status of God's kingdom and His plan of salvation. Salvation has come, yet one day the Savior Himself will come the second time to meet us face to face. But we're not there yet. God's kingdom has come, yet one day we will bow down before His throne face to face, yet we're not there yet. So in this in-between time, does God have a specific plan for the church, for you and for I? And if I tell you that God has a specific plan, and that plan involves Christians being slandered, defeated, crushed, and even killed, What if I tell you that this path of persecution and suffering 
is not our path to defeat, but our path to victory, our path to glory. Today, we're going to explore some very, very scary image of the defeat of the church. And yet, at the same time, we're also going to explore some very glorious imagery of the church. Together, they form a narrative, a story of the church of you and of I. This narrative can be broken down to four segments, and we'll look at each one of them. Firstly, Satan will conquer the whole world. Then we'll see that Satan will also crush the church. But then we'll see that the church will overcome by embracing suffering and persecution. And lastly, we will, we're going to learn about a new concept called the, the eternal gospel, which means that the hour of the judgment has finally come. But please do not leave the service today just with these words on the screen, because these words alone would not have any lasting impact on you. But the imagery and the narrative will, if you allow yourself to be captured by them. And I think that's the reason why God reveals through a vision to John instead of a PowerPoint presentation of words. So I encourage you to open not just your mind, but your heart, to be scared by the imagery of the church, of the defeat of the church, but yet let your breath be taken away by the glorious imagery of the church at the same time. So shall we start? So firstly, we're gonna, last week we saw in Revelation 12, the dragon, meaning Satan, he was defeated in heaven and he was thrown down to earth. And Kevin said, in his last breath, He tried to wage war against the women, the nation of Israel. However, the women was miraculously rescued. And then Satan moves on to the women's offspring. That is us, the church. Is then in chapter 13, we see how Satan presents itself to the world. Surprisingly and unsurprisingly, Satan presents himself as a counterfeit of God. In other words, he tries to imitate God in drawing the world to himself. First, we see a beast with ten horns and seven heads, ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on his heads. John saw this beast and describes it in in very scary terms. He says, it's like a leopard with bear's feet and lion's mouth. Very powerful looking, isn't it? But then he goes on to say that the beast actually had to receive power, authority, and he's thrown from the dragon. Now, does that remind you of the first sentence of the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God the Father gave his power and his authority and thrown to Jesus. And here we're seeing the dragon doing exactly the same to the beast. Then he says that one of the beast's heads seemed to have suffered a mortal wound. The passage does not tell us why he had suffered this wound, but we know that that wound would have led to this beast's death. But then this beast was miraculously healed. 
and the whole earth marveled, and they're going to follow the beast. Does that remind you of Jesus' resurrection from the dead? And the church follows Jesus because of it. The beast by his appearance of power and his resurrection from his mortal wound has made the entire world worship it. People from every tribe, language, and nation, all who dwell on earth will worship the beast. Do we not read in Revelation 4, where John saw before the throne of God people from all tribes, nations, and languages? So just as God's people are from a diverse cultural and national backgrounds, we're going to see that Satan has also drawn to himself the same diverse group of people. In another word, not only is Satan being a, a counterfeit of God, he is also creating a counterfeit of the church. Then we see that the whole world will say, probably in all languages, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? We see the same feeling of awe and reverence in the Song of Moses. The song that the Israelites sang right after they crossed the Red Sea and saw what God did to the horses and chariots of Egypt. They sang, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Now Satan has given his people a song of victory, a song of identity, just as God has given us the same. And not only will people worship the beast, they will also worship the dragon because the dragon had given his authority to the beast. Does that remind you of us worshiping both Jesus the Son and the Father. And just as you think enough is enough, there's another beast that comes into the scene. Unlike this powerful looking first beast, the second beast has two horns. And it says it looks like a gentle and harmless lamb. Does that remind you of Jesus, the Lamb of God? The second beast is able to perform great signs and wonders. And by then, the second beast deceives people to make an image of the first beast. And then he gives breath to this image to speak. And this whole act is going to make the whole world worship the first beast. So the second beast is not asking people to worship himself. But it is doing propaganda and campaign for the first beast. Does that remind you of the Holy Spirit who will teach us and remind us of everything that Jesus said? So all of a sudden we're seeing an evil trinity of the dragon, the first beast, and the second beast. Then he says something very troubling. The second beast causes everyone to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. And the purpose of it is to show total allegiance to the first beast. Does that remind you of Revelation 7, 
where he talks about God sealing his servants on their foreheads. Now let's pause for a moment and try to take in these scary images. One of the beautiful things about the church family is that regardless of your political views, your education levels, your economic status, you are a son or a daughter of God. And we are able to love one another across our differences. We're able to forge unity in the world where unity seems impossible. But now imagine a world that is fully united regardless of their political views, their economic status, their educational levels. They are united to worship Satan, shouting who is like the beast and who can fight against it. What a scary world to live in. And how will the church fare in such a world? Chapter 13 tells us that the first beast wage war against the church. It conquered the church by power and authority. The second beast caused the church unable to buy or sell and caused the church to be slain. Let me say it again. The first beast waged war against the church and conquered the church by power and authority. The second beast caused the church unable to buy or sell and caused the church to be slain. For the Christians that read John's letter, Revelation 13 is not something that lies in the future to be feared, but it was the very reality they lived in. The Roman emperors all liked to assume titles of deities. Nero Caesar referred himself on his coins as savior of the world. It's pretty much like the blasphemous names on the heads of the first beast. In AD 64, Nero started a severe persecution of the Christian church. He burned hundreds of Christians alive and then murdered many. Four years later, there was a revolt by one of the governors against Nero. And the governor took his throne. He then took his, the, Nero then, then took his own life. But many at first believed that this evil emperor Nero Caesar was only faking his own death. He will one day come back to Rome to take back his throne. But as time went on, people shifted to believe that Nero will one day actually rise from the dead. So in many ways, Nero seems to be the first beast who suffered a mortal wound on one of his heads only to be healed and rise again. But on the other hand, the Christians in John's time must have felt that the Roman emperor is unbreakable. There may be revolutions against the empire only to be crushed. There may be a new emperor on the throne only to be as evil. And any mortal wound will be healed and imperial worship will grow ever stronger. For the minority of Christians who were able to escape this physical persecution, they then found themselves unable to participate in the economic system of Rome. The reason is Rome demands sacrifice to emperors. 
And in order to buy or sell, everyone must obtain a certificate of sacrifice to the emperor. And without this certificate of sacrifice, Christians were forced to commit economic suicide and suffer in poverty and starvation. So after Nero, then Emperor Domitian, when, when he was on the throne, he then built his own statue that is nearly eight meters high. And there was a legal tradition of executing Christians who refused to bow down to this statue. It sounds like the image of the first beast, that those who do not bow down to it would be slain. So how is God going to comfort the people at John's time? What is God's call for them in a time like that? I remember at law school, I enrolled in the law and religion class. And as a Christian, I was very passionate about arguing for religious freedom for Christians in the workplace, in the public sphere. Because I felt a strong sense of injustice that Christians were persecuted simply because they, were, they refused to sell cakes or flowers for a gay wedding. And I was hoping my essay would make, wake people up to the conscience. And one day they would all join me in defending religious freedom for all Christians. In a way, I believe that God's call for Christians in the face of persecution and suffering. I believe the only way is, is for us to stand up and fight for our freedom. But chapter 13, verse 10, presents a totally different call. A call that I was not aware of. It says, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. God is saying that no matter how hard and how smart we fight persecution, persecution remains inevitable. In God's letter to church in Smyrna, God says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and not, but a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Does this not sound like total defeat? Satan has won. The whole world bows down before it. And those who don't are inevitably doomed. So God is just telling the church, to accept their fate in verse 10? I think the answer is no. In fact, after God told the church in Smyrna about the suffering and the persecution that is to come, God then says that He will give them the crown of life. And that's the same thing we're seeing right after John's vision of the two beasts. All of a sudden, John said, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with them 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Remember Revelation 7, 
where John first saw the 144,000 from every tribe of Israel. And then he immediately saw a great multitude standing before God's throne. We have learned that the 144,000 actually represents the entire church. And where are the church standing here? They are standing on Mount Zion. The Old Testament has time and again described Mount Zion as the dwelling place of God, the place where Israel will look to for salvation and for hope. Because from Mount Zion, God will wage war against the enemies of Israel. And now we're seeing the Lamb standing right there with His army, that is the church. So what we're seeing is that in a dramatic change of scene, the church rises from total defeat to glorious victory. Verse 3 of chapter 14 says, No one could learn their song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. What this sentence is saying is, the church was unable to buy anything, but then it was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The church was unable to sell anything, but now the church becomes the only, person, only institution that is able to learn the song that they are singing to God. The first beast was able to utter blasphemous words against God, and Satan's followers were shouting praises to him. But now, at Mount Zion, the only thing that could be heard is the new song that a church is singing to God. So loud that John described it as the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. How did John describe the church? Verse 4 says that they have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. What this means becomes clear when we read on to verse 8, where the angel said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of a sexual immorality. And how do we know that the church has not defiled itself with the worship of Satan? Because we know that instead of having the mark of Satan on their foreheads, the church has the names of Jesus and God the Father written on their foreheads. Now let's pause again for a moment and try to understand how the church rises from total defeat to glorious victory. Is it by power, might, and authority like how the first beast conquers the world? Is it by tricks, seduction, deception, lies, like how the second beast conquers the world? No, the church comes out victoriously because of verse 10 of chapter 13. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. God is saying that the way we come to our victory is the same way Christ came to His victory. Christ was the one who went into captivity 
and worse than being slain with a sword, he died by the most humiliating and painful death on the cross. The church will rise victoriously not by might, power, authority, not by trick or lies or seduction, not by, not by powerful advocacy for our freedom of religion. The church will rise victoriously only by embracing the inevitable sufferings and persecution, knowing that one day the one who bought us with his blood will allow us to stand in his presence on Mount Zion and we will sing the songs of praise that is going to be everlasting. But the church does not just stand up there. As I said, the Old Testament has described Mount Zion as the place where God is going to make wars against Israel's enemies. Who is Israel's enemies? As we have learned in chapter 12, it's a dragon. Because in chapter 12, the dragon tries to wage war against the woman. And now God, with the church at his armies, are ready to wage war against Satan. Then in verse 6, we hear a proclamation of an eternal gospel, an eternal good news. It's a good news that there needs no more suffering, no more waiting, no more persecution and no more tear. Because the hour of the judgment has come. This proclamation kicks off the battle. And the battle begins at verse 14. We see that Jesus with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand swings his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. We, the church, are finally gathered to himself. Then an angel also swings a sharp sickle, gathers the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great vine press of the wrath of God. The vine press was then taken outside the city, meaning it was taken outside the presence of God. And it was trodden, and we saw that blood flew from it. Let's pause again and take a deep breath, because we have seen a lot today. We have seen the whole world worshiping Satan, the church totally crushed, and then suddenly the church rises victoriously with Jesus. And while the church is being gathered to God himself like harvest was being reaped, we're also seeing that those who worship Satan are thrown out of God's presence, them with blood. Yet make no mistake about this, this is not reserved for the end time. It is actually the narrative of the church past, present, and future. As it was happening to the Christians at John's time, it is happening to us now, and it will happen to future generations of Christians. So what can we take away from this narrative? I'd like to talk about three things. Firstly, God is sovereign, even over our suffering and persecutions. Second, that God will overcome by embracing, the church will overcome by embracing suffering and persecution. And lastly, I'm going to address the infamous number 666 and ask, what is the 666 of your life? First, we learn that God is sovereign over all things. 
He is not just in control of our salvation and the judgment of the world. He is in control of even the sufferings and the persecutions of the church. We see in chapter 13, in verse 5, it says, The beast was given a mouth. In verse 7, it says, The beast was allowed to make war on the saints. And then authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Verse 15, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. What these are saying is that God is even in control of the damage, of the persecution and suffering by the beast. So nothing that Satan does in the world is going to escape God's control. And just as God is in control of Jesus' suffering on the cross, he is going to be in control of whatever Satan throws at you. So instead of saying that Satan will conquer the whole world, is actually God allows Satan to conquer the whole world. Instead of saying Satan will crush the church, is actually God allows Satan to crush the church. Then, then we're going to go to the second point that we're going to see how the church is going to overcome by embracing suffering and persecution. We learned in chapter 13 that the first beast is going to use might, power, and authority to crush us. And whenever we talk about persecution of Christians, in Hong Kong we often talk about the persecution of our brothers and sisters in China. How the Bible is being banned and recently being officially revised. Churches have to toe the party line. Pastors being put in jail. And what is often our immediate reaction to that? Pray for them, for the persecution and sufferings to be gone, for Christ to conquer the authority in China, for Christ to change the hearts of leaders in China and grant religious freedom for all. Pray for Hong Kong, for our religious leader. Or perhaps we look to Daniel, the book of Daniel, as Claire t- told us today in, in Call to Worship, We may be praying for our leaders to be like Nebuchadnezzar, to have a change of heart. But the truth is, in God's sovereignty, that doesn't always happen. And when that doesn't happen, let's not not forget God's call at verse 10. Despite our prayers, despite our efforts to fight for religious freedom, suffering and persecution will inevitably come in a very scary way. And how do we confront the first beast? John says, it calls for endurance and faith. What is the faith that John is referring to? I think it is a faith in Revelation 14, that one day we will stand victoriously with Christ on Mount Zion. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the Apostles Paul encourages the church to stand firm. He says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In the flesh, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 
then the saying that's written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The sufferings and persecution often feel like an eternity. But Paul says, endure and in a twinkling of an eye, the trumpet of the battle will sound and we will all stand with Christ in victory, in glory of Mount Zion. Yes, our brothers and sisters in China are being crushed, but they are in reality winning the battle. And when suffering and persecutions come one day to Hong Kong, to Watermark, let's know it, it is our way to victory and it is our way to glory. I have written something that ends with verse 10. Each sentence is about a potential persecution suffering that is going to come our way. And each sentence is followed by a proclamation that what is said in the sentence is our way to victory, our way to glory. I read from the sentences, and may I invite you to proclaim in the, bra in the bracket our way to victory and our way to glory. Okay? If anyone is to be fired to unemployment, he goes. If anyone is to be stripped of their wealth and possessions, to poverty he goes. If anyone is to be kicked out of their homes, to homelessness he goes. If anyone is to be deprived of their loved ones, into deep sorrow he goes. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Our way to glory. And lastly, I would like to touch on the second beast. Unlike the, set, the first beast that crushes the church with power, the second beast uses signs, wonders, deception, and seduction. Which beast, the first or the second, do you think is currently more at work in Hong Kong? Let's not be deceived that the living room of Satan, in Kevin's word, is across the border in China, and Hong Kong is only Satan's backyard. Right after the vision of the second beast, John says, this calls for wisdom. And strangely, he, calls, he gives a riddle for his readers to discern a man through the number 666. And there's a lot of scholarly debates about who this man was. Could it be Nero? Domitian? Maybe, I don't know. But I think instead of focusing on who this man was 
at John's time trying to seduce people away from God, I think we should better focus on what is this 666 in your life right now? What is seducing you from your total devotion to God? What is your 666? Comfort? Entertainment? Excessive drinking? Living a life without commitment? Accumulation of wealth or possessions? Rising to power? And as I was studying chapter 14 this week, I have to confess there are quite a number of 666 in my own life. John says this calls for wisdom, prayerful discernment. You can ask your friend, your family members, your spouse, your CG, ask them what is 666 in your life. And when you have identified it, what do you do about it? I think the answer is the same as how we confront the first beast by patient endurance and by faith. I'd like to quote again from 1 Corinthians, this time from chapter 9, where the Apostle Paul compares the Christian journey to an athlete's training. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others... I myself should be disqualified. Here Paul compares us to athletes running to glory. And before we reach the finish line, we discipline our body and keep it under control. But what is the motivation of putting your body under discipline day in and day out? It is the reward at the finish line. And for athletes, is to stand on the award podium and being laid on their head a perishable wreath by a famous person, perhaps. But Paul says for us, is to stand on Mount Zion, being laid on our head an imperishable wreath. That is the crown of life by the Lamb who has redeemed us by His very own blood. Watermark, let your heart be captured by this imagery and picture yourself as standing on Mount Zion, receiving the crown of life, meeting Christ face to face. I would like to end with 1 Corinthians chapter 9, what I've read. In the flesh, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Then the saying that is written will become true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, 
is your sting. 